And if we never get there, we never become people of love. People that live in hurry and denial and running from pain never become people who love the world, the people in it, and their own life in it with genuine, authentic compassion and affection. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to the Dad Tired Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lopes. Join me every Monday as we dive into what it looks like to be men who fall in love with Jesus and help our families do the same. You can learn more about our books, resources, conferences, and even online community by going to dadtired.com. Let's dive into today's episode. So glad to have you guys back here on the Dad Tired Podcast. Today we're talking about hurry. Uh, if you feel like you are just overwhelmed constantly, not that you're working hard, but you're just, you've got too much on your plate. Uh, constantly you feel that way. Maybe you feel a little bit irritable or maybe some of the things that you really value, uh, some of the priorities that you really value are slipping away from you because you just feel like you don't have the time, whether that be health, your spiritual disciplines, figuring out time to spend with Jesus, with your wife, with your kids, whatever it be. Uh, there's so many of us who just feel like our lives are overhurried. If that's you in any way, today's episode is for you. I have author, speaker, pastor, John Mark Comer on the podcast today. He's going to do what he always does, which is just give us incredible wisdom and truth while also pointing us back to Jesus. Uh, John Mark Comer is one of my favorite teachers in the entire world, and I always feel super honored when he comes back on the show. So I know you're going to love today's interview with him on the topic of hurry. Before we dive in to today's episode, I do want to thank my friends over at Kettlebell Kitchen for sponsoring this episode. Just this week, actually, I had Kung Pao chicken with sesame broccoli. Uh, it was delicious, and my favorite part about it was I did not have to cook it myself. Uh, I'm not a very good cook. I don't uh, really know what I'm doing in the kitchen, but I still want to eat healthy, and so Kettlebell Kitchen allows me to do that. There's a lot of information out there when it comes to diets and meal plans and all that, but most of those don't take into account your very specific needs. And so that's what Kettlebell Kitchen does. They know it's not a one-size-fits-all meal plan service. They really tailor and come up with a solution just for you specifically and your goals when it comes to nutrition. One of my favorite things about them is there's no hassle. You can sign up for a plan or you can just order a la carte. There's no long-term contracts required. They'll deliver the meals twice a week so that everything makes sure to stay nice and fresh. You never have to worry about sourcing ingredients or fretting over the macros. You can just heat it serve and get the food you need for real sustainable change you can feed the champion you with kettlebell kitchen go to kettlebellkitchen.com enter the code tired t-i-r-e-d for 25 dollars off each of your first two orders for new customers that's 25 dollars off each of your first two orders at kettlebellkitchen.com using the code tired t-i-r-e-d John Mark Comer, dude, you uh, welcome back to the podcast, the Dad Tired Podcast. You are a returning uh, guest to our show, which uh, if I can think of like five people I'd want to come back on the show, you're definitely in the top of that list, man. Uh, I'm so grateful that you're here. Thanks for being here today. Oh, you're so kind, Jared. It's absolutely fantastic to talk to you. And we're close enough that I'm assuming you're enjoying the same beautiful blue sky turn tree fall day that is today yeah, in the northwest yep i was just uh throwing a football around outside with my son it feels like it's 70 degrees and the trees are on fire 
with yes. colors. It's just so awesome. I love this yeah, is my favorite time of year for sure. I don't know what it is, but I remember yesterday that said it was supposed to be 67 degrees today. I was like, what? I'm going to eat yep. lunch outside or something. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. we, we take every ounce of sunshine that we can before it exactly. gets pretty dark. Uh, well, before we dive in, man, um, I just want to say for the listeners, uh, I, I think just about everyone's going to know who you are and what you're doing, but you're going to hate this introduction, by the way. I just want to preface it. <laughs> <laughs> I would plug my uh, ear, but you can't really yeah. do that when you're recording a yeah. podcast. <laughs> Uh, you guys, if you don't know John Mark Comer, and uh, he's, I have the privilege of getting to live in the same city as him, but um, obviously his stuff is, you can be found, can be found anywhere on the internet. But John Mark, like you're just, God has anointed you, man, to just be such a gifted teacher for our generation. I was just talking to my best friend yesterday, and we were talking about how we feel like you are one of the very few voices out there um, that is just so relevant to our generation and to uh, us trying to be followers of Jesus. And so that's me uh, kind of giving you an introduction, but also just saying thanks, man. There's a ton of like young pastors out right now that are kind of going viral. And uh, I, again, I know you're going to hate this introduction, but like, uh, it's just really like terrible theology and you're giving us like really, really good stuff, man. And it's just a rare, refreshing voice. So thank you. I'm, I'm like deeply honored that you'd come back and hang out with us again on the, the Dad Tired Show. Well, that's incredibly kind. And uh, it's honestly an honor to come back. And I love what you're doing. You know, as a, as a father myself, so much of my work the last, you know, few years in this book I'm about to do are, are all really about just asking that question, how do we become more loving, you know? And a lot of that's born out of my own failure to love as a father and husband. So um, I just, I love what you're doing and I'm really grateful to chat with you. Thanks, man. Yeah, it goes both ways. Well, tell me about this new book, uh, which comes out this week. And, uh, you know, when did you realize, well, before we, uh, before I even dive into all the questions, tell us about the book. What, what's the latest project? Um, yeah, so the latest project is basically my manifesto for like slow life and my case at a theological as well as a psycho-spiritual level for why hurry is incompatible with love and incompatible with the life that Jesus has for us in what he called the kingdom of God. And it's really built around this story that I heard a couple of years ago. So from, um, I wouldn't call him a mentor of mine. I think he would balk at that title. He's far out of my lead, but John Ortberg, are you familiar with his work? Do you read his yeah, stuff or? Yep, yep, yep. And he's kind of, he's a generation ahead of me. He's kind of who I want to be when I grow up um, on so many different levels. He's a pastor teacher, writer kind of guy, introvert like myself and um, hero of mine. And I wouldn't call him a mentor, but we have lunch two or three times a year. And I asked him broader questions. I actually just had lunch with them a couple of days ago. And um, he told me this story a couple of years ago, which is actually in a few of his books, if you read them, about an interaction he had with Dallas Willard, the philosopher from University of Southern California, gosh, 10, 20 years ago long before Willard's death. And John was a mentee of Willard himself. And in the story, very long story short, Willard has this iconic line. He says very little, but he just says that you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life because, quote, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And when I, I came into that story and that quote at a really key juncture in my own autobiography where I just I was kind of in my, you know, quarter life crisis and knew that some things had to change or I was not, I was not on track to become a person of love. I was on track to become someone who was quasi successful by the American standards, but 
really a failure by the metrics of the kingdom of God and or at least in lack of that. And so it just came into my life at a really key time four or five years ago. And I really spent the last half a decade kind of on all things spiritual formation, asking that question, how do we become people of love? We all love that idea, but how does that actually work? What's the inner mechanisms of that? And um, and really just attempting to slow down and all of the things I've gotten into over the last half a decade plus now and all of the reading and all the research, but of all the stuff from Sabbath and spiritual disciplines and therapy and, you know, digital minimalism and minimalism, minimalism and like all this, all these different things that I've been yeah. exploring in my attempt to really um, receive love from God and give love to others slowing down, like kind of unhurrying my life has by far been the most challenging of everything. And at the same time, it's by far been the most rewarding on those few little days or hours or moments when I actually get it right. And I click into the pace of Jesus, what um, one Japanese theologian, Kusuke Kiyama, calls the speed of love. And uh, so the book is really about that. It's kind of about, it's my case for why hurry is devastating to emotional health and spiritual life. It's a little bit of journalistic kind of history. It's some psychological stuff. And then it's a case for basically rule of life and reintroducing that ancient concept for the modern world. And then I have four practices, very practical stuff for unhurrying your life around science and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, and so on. Yeah, well, I want to get into some of that towards the end of the conversation. But uh, I mean, this is kind of an obvious question here, but you know, you took that from like your own life, like, okay, I feel like I am not able to love the way that I am designed to love. And because of the pace of my current life, like, when did you go from that being a personal reflection to like, oh, I think actually a lot of people are dealing with this. And it's something that I should probably write a book about and start to share on a bigger scale. Well, there's a kind of a couple phases to that. Um, that's an interesting question. I've not thought about it, but immediately I think an answer comes to mind. One was just that personal moment of my own journey, all the pastor church stuff, book stuff aside, not that wasn't remotely on my radar. Just, oh, wow, I move way too fast. It's, you know, it's corrosive to love. Second moment was um, as I was learning, you know, four or five years ago, I embarked on this massive reading and research project around spiritual formation, which is just technical or kind of quasi-academic language for the process by which we become more like Jesus and our real yeah. true self, or even said shorter, the process by which we become more loving. And as I was learning all of this stuff, which was fascinating, it was just bizarre to me that I had not picked this up in Bible college and seminary, not picked it up in reading, not picked it up in church culture, not picked it up growing up the son of a wonderful pastor. It was 80% you know, new information to me. And it was just this invigorating time in my life. And so very long story short, we realized that our church was not really architected or designed to yield life transformation. It was designed for other things, but not for people to actually become the kind of people who naturally live the Sermon on the Mount out of the core of their transformed person. And so we realized, oh, wow, we have to actually change how we do church. So we came up, we came up with a working theory of change. Like this is how we think people grow and mature to become like Jesus. Then we came up with an attempt. We have a, a few that we're on our second one now. I have a couple more we want to try after an attempt for how to like re-architect church with that end in mind of spiritual formation in mind. And so I came up with this whole idea and I sat down with my, um, with a, with a PhD, with a psychologist who's a 70-year-old psychologist, been an expert in his field for four or five decades, also a follower of Jesus. And I basically ran this whole working theory of change by him. And I was, you know, 
learning all this stuff about psychology and the inner person. And I basically wanted his critique, his input, his pushback. And we had this great little conversation. And honestly, he had very little to say when he like, I gave him this our working theory of change. Here's a little diagram. Here's how we want to change the church. And basically he said, yep, that's great. Yep, here's what Freud said to that. Great. Here's what some new studies say about that. Great. And then at the end, he just said, this is really all I had to say. He said, the number one problem you will face is time. And then he said, in my experience as a therapist, after you know a couple decades of it, he said, quote, people are just too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich and vibrant lives. And that just really stuck with me. He basically said, oh, this is all great, night, great, great stuff. It likely won't work because people are too busy to actually like live the life that Jesus has for them. That was his experience after a couple decades of basically attempting to help people grow, mature, get freedom, healing. So that I think was step two. Step three was based on his advice when we kicked off this whole new kind of series that we call Practicing the Way. That's kind of a four-year journey our church is on right now of spiritual formation and practices and community and emotional health. When we kicked it off, I did this like long teaching series, two or three months long, and I ended it based on his advice. I ended it with a little teaching on hurry that I just kind of put together my thoughts you know, the John Orberg, Dallas Willard story that had come to me, my own journey with hurry, some stuff I've been learning about the history of hurry and speed. And some, it just I just kind of put together some thoughts and gave this little teaching on hurry. And it just like kind of went off like a bomb in our church, not in a bad way, but like, you know, all <laughs> sorts of people were talking about it. And there's just all this buzz and pushback and like, and just like, it just created this whole like, this like, I think this collective community wide, like, yes, that's finger on the pulse. And I think that's when it really hit me. Oh, first off, that PhD was right. Secondly, this is not just my, this is not just a me issue. Like I'm a type A person. This is like a Western culture, you know, systemic issue. And so that was, you know, maybe three years ago now. And yeah, exactly three years ago now. And so, you know, a year or two later, I said, man, there's just so much resonance with this. Um, I, uh, I, I should turn this into a book because it was just so much out of my own life. And sometimes you want to like, you write to like, write your way into the life that you want, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think it's a David, David Brooks line or something, but you attempt to like put things in writing to just force your like, to force it into your muscle memory as just a part of that process, you know? So I think there was some, there was some personal motivation in it too. I just, I really want to become an unhurried person who's present to the moment and present to the person in front of me. And that is counter everything in my personality, everything in my neurobiology and everything in my culture and the way it spiritually formed me. So this, this book is my attempt to like lead an internal and external like insurgency against the hurry of our day. Oh man. Well, dude, there, so I'm reading your book. Uh, I was reading it last night and, uh, you know, I'm like preparing for the interview and I just like, I hate it. It's, it's the worst. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, like, I'm like, this is, I'm trying to just get some information here. And like, now you're like convicting my soul, man. I'm like trying to rush through, but I want to read one thing that you said that was just, it was so beautifully said. And I think this Go is what's going to resonate with a lot of guys. So you said on page 25, you said, but love is painfully time consuming. And then you go on to say this paragraph, 
Hurry and love are incompatible. All my worst moments as a father, a husband, a pastor, even as a human being are when I'm in a hurry, late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day. I ooze with anger, tension, a critical nagging, the antithesis of love. If you don't believe me, next time you're trying to get your type B wife and three young, easily distracted children out of the house and you're running late, a subject on which I have a wealth of experience, just pay attention to how you relate to them. Does it look like does it look and feel like love or is it far more in the vein of agitation, anger, a biting comment, a rough glare? Hurry and love are oil and water they simply do not mix. Man, just like reading that last night, I was literally in my living room as my kids are running around being crazy. My wife's trying to get me to like, hey, can you help out with this? And I was like, holy cow, this, I think that's going to just resonate with so many dads. Yeah. Um, and, and it was at the point where I realized like, this isn't just a schedule problem. Like we're not just talking about like, hey, can you give us some life hacks and some schedule hacks so we can figure out how to get some more time in our day and maximize our time so we're not in such a rush all the time. Like this is a, at what you're the the premise that you're making is this is actually a love problem. Like this is yes. who God created us to be. Like we are not able to operate in that if we are in a pace of hurry all the time, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, Ortberg has this great line. Hurry isn't just a sign of a disordered schedule. It's a sign of a disordered heart. Hmm. And meaning like uh, we want to think it's just like a life hack schedule. I work too much issue. But, you know, all the historical data, if you look at kind of the way that life has sped up since the 1950s, all the clinical psychological research, it, it says that, no, this is way deeper than that. That, there, that most of the time we hurry because we're trying to run away from something, whether it be the disappointment of a marriage or the struggle of our of parenting, of loving our children well, or disappointment of our life, how our life actually is, or or running to something, a quick fix or instant gratification or digital distraction or entertainment. or But in, we're, we're attempting most of the time to avoid the reality of our life. And so... To slow down, I think, which is one of the reasons it's so hard for people to slow down. I think there's the neurobiological reason, reason. Our bodies are formed in such a way that we speed up to this pace and we require that kind of dopamine instant gratification hit that we get from everything from a like on our phone to another email to another hour at the office or another thing off our to-do list. But then there's that deeper psycho-spiritual like need for our soul to be able to live with well-being and ease and blessed in the language of Jesus, right in the middle of the reality of our life as it is, not as we wish it was. Mm -hmm. And that's the deep, and, and if we never get there, we never become people of love. People that live in hurry and denial and running from pain never become people who love the world, the people in it, and their own life in it with genuine, authentic compassion and affection. Hey guys, want to take a quick minute to invite you to come hang out with some of us dad tired guys over on the pray.com app. I've actually set up a community where a lot of us guys are just encouraging each other, praying for each other and pointing each other back to Jesus. If you 
could use some prayer for something right now or you just want to pray for other guys in our community, this is a great place to do it. It's totally free. It doesn't cost you anything. You can just download the Pray.com app straight from the App Store on your phone. Uh, they do have some bonus features if you're interested in a premium subscription. Uh, they've got all kinds of things where you can hear Bible stories come to life. They help you create Bible reading plans. They even have uh, sleep routines that help you fall asleep to different scriptures and prayers and things like that. That's a great bonus as well if you're interested in something like that. Right now, for Dad Tired listeners, you can get 60% off of a Pray.com premium subscription by downloading the Pray.com app at Pray.com forward slash Dad Tired. That's Pray.com forward slash Dad Tired. P-R-A-Y.com forward slash Dad Tired. Over 50 million prayers have been created on Pray.com. You can find out why by going to Pray.com forward slash Dad Tired. Do you know the most epic stories of the Bible? New from the Pray.com app, Pray Biblical Sagas. Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth and the conquering Lion of Judah, stood before his pursuers. He spoke with the voice of God, saying, I am he. The most exciting way to learn the Bible in one year. All you need to do is download the Pray.com app in Android or Apple app stores. Download the Pray.com app and hear the Bible come to life today. I was running around today. Today has been a hurried day, and uh, yeah. I'm trying to like sit down to do this interview. Uh, I'm trying yeah, to like, don't feel get... guilt, man. It is the modern world. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like running around. And it, what's interesting is I always talk about on the podcast, like what would it look like for us, even as men, to be really see our lives on mission in our neighborhoods. We talk about that a lot here, and how would God use us as parents to our own kids, but also to the kids around us that may not have men of God around them that can love them well. And, and so the kids outside, I told you I was playing uh, football with my son, but there were some neighbor kids and everything in me just wanted to like run in, tell them to go keep busy as I could get ready for this interview. And something after like reading your book last night, I was just like, what would it look like even for me in this moment to just like slow down enough to pay attention to who's right yeah. in front of me? Uh, these kids right in front of me, I just threw a football around with some of the neighbor kids and like I mean, it's just such a simple thing. Obviously, we're not getting, that's not getting down to like the deep rooted stuff that we were just talking about. But even those simple ways of just loving the people right in front of you, um, as opposed to being distracted with all the million things that we have going on in our head. Um, can you give like a three minute, uh, I know that's like an unfair uh, ask, but can you give like a three minute history? Like, how did we get to this pace where we're at? Like you had mentioned back in the 50s, they started to do some studies on this. Where did, how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, okay, so gosh, three minutes. Where you don't actually highlight? have to do three minutes. Yeah, um, just you know, well, <laughs> no, no, no. Just, just, I mean, the introduction of the clock was huge, which started actually with monks based around monastic prayer, an attempt to um, rally all the monks by the bell at the same time. Hmm. But the first public clock was like 1370 or something like that in Cologne, Germany, and and historians argue that the clock really changed the Western world. This is why it's not nearly as prevalent in say African culture. The Western world's relationship to time, and it created what they call artificial time. Whereas now we don't like go to bed when it gets dark and wake up when our body is done resting. We go to bed after we're done watching Netflix and, you know, our 
turn off our light, our light bulb and we wake up when the alarm clock goes off. And that's a pretty enormous shift. And it has to do with economics. Some of this is over my pay grade, but it has to do with employer relationships, the shift from like a feudal system to a capitalistic system, because now time belongs to our job, to the office, in particular in a pre-digital world, you like have to be at the office at 8 a.m. or whatever. So the clock's a huge thing. Then you have Edison and the light bulb that massively changes our relationship to time. Before Edison, the average American slept 11 hours a night. Oh my gosh. Okay, so now the average American is at seven. So, I mean, just think about what's the neurobiological, what's the social, what's the, the emotional? I'm always interested in like the issue behind the issues. Right. Like look at outrage culture and politics right now. Those are legitimate political issues, conversation, disagreement, injustice. I get it. But I'm always interested, like, what's behind all of that? This level of anxiety and anger, what's the, like, psychological, the social, you know, how is how is widespread divorce tied to that? How is attachment theory? How is digital distraction? How is the first generation that grew up with phones in their pockets and now they're on Twitter? How, like, what's behind all of this stuff and how does it exacerbate it, you know? So um, you have the light bulb. That does a huge thing. People start sleeping less. And then really, I think everything kicks off in the kind of 50s and 60s with like labor saving devices is a huge thing. You know, the toaster, the microwave, the dishwasher. And everybody thought in the 60s that the problem in the future would be um, we'd have too much leisure on our hands. There's a famous, it's hilarious now. It's a true story. It's a famous Senate subcommittee that testified during the Nixon era that by 1985, their prediction, like the smartest minds of the day, their prediction was that the average American would work 22 hours a week. And, um, you know, I think of like the Jetsons, like yeah, that, like yeah. an early cartoon, like they're not working, right. like there's robots doing everything. They're just like living like rich people. Yeah. That was the, that was what all the smart people said. That's, that's where we're going. But instead, the exact opposite has happened. So I just read a recent study this morning, actually, that said compared to the 1950s, Americans work four weeks longer per year, wow. four weeks. Leisure time is actually way down. And what economists and historians argue is that basically labor-saving devices have saved us a ton of time. So like, I don't know about you, I didn't spend an hour this morning chopping wood to keep my family from right. freezing to death, right. you know? And I didn't like spend a day last week hunting for an elk to feed my family in winter, you know? So labor-saving devices save a ton of time so which begs the question, what have we done with all that extra time? And most economists argue that we, we chose money over time. We chose to actually work more hours, not less, in order to raise our standard of living and have gadgets and iPhones and, you know, all the stuff that we have. And so basically, it sped our culture up to this frenetic pace. You have the death of the Sabbath in the 1960s, which was fascinating because there was never a national conversation, never a religious conversation. Basically, capitalism just kind of eroded some of the political laws. You know, it's like I talked to my dad. He grew up and I grew up too, but he grew up in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley long before it's called Silicon Valley. And he tells stories, he's 69, about growing up in the 50s and 60s in the Bay Area and how on Sunday everything was closed. I mean, everything. Hmm. And everybody, for the most part, in his like world went to church. You're either Protestant, Catholic, or mainline. So he was mainline. He never even heard the gospel, had no faith in Jesus. It was like, wasn't even really spiritual. It was just like a religious thing. And, and then in the afternoon, you just hang out, take a nap, you know, maybe throw the throw the football out in the front yard with neighbor kids or whatever, have a nice big, huge Sunday dinner was what they called it. Hmm. It was basically Sabbath that was 
built into the cultural and even political and legal architecture of the state of California. And he tells stories about when 7-Eleven first came. And I think it was like 1969. Don't quote me on that when it first came to the Bay Area. But and how radical that was that somewhere was open on Sunday and you could go buy a candy bar or whatever, you know. So basically, you have the death of the Sabbath, which is, again, I think one of the issues behind the issues that you never really hear hardly anything about this, except for maybe an op-ed columnist like an Andrew Sullivan or somebody. And I think that does a massive thing. Now, I mean, what does it do to entire society when they don't have a day that's basically set aside to rest? And it's just go, go, go. And that day instead becomes shopping, entertainment, getting a head up on work. Then you have email. And then finally, everything climaxes in the iPhone in 2007. And I really think, again, this is over my pay grade, but that when the history books are, are written or vlogged or whatever they are in a couple hundred years that, you know, historians will argue that 07 was just as key of an inflection point as 1440. And I think Thomas Friedman in his book on speed, I think he makes that same point that, you know, 1440, that's the year of Gutenberg printing press, which in turn, you know, spread the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment all over the world, changed the world. And, you know, 2007 is going to be on par, if not greater impact than that. And we're just 12 years into, I was, I was on the phone the other day with Alan Fadling. I don't know if you follow his work at all. Great mm. teacher of the way of Jesus, writes about hurry. And um, he, he called the phone the human experiment in omnipresence. Mm. And um, we're just, you know, 12 years into it. And it's really like, I think we're like the human guinea pigs on this technology. And I think the early results, results are absolutely terrifying. I'll end with this, but one of the big problems with digital technology, as we all know, is it's intentionally designed for distraction and addiction because it's, you know, economists call it the attention economy. It's like they make money, not off us buying phones. And most of the stuff we do on our phones is free. They make money on our attention. We're not the customer. We want to think of ourselves as the customer. We're actually the product. And so um, that's the whole, that's the whole business model, but Facebook or fill in your, you know, digital thing of choice. And in that world, it's really interesting how like, so their whole goal is basically to to steal our attention because that's how they make money with advertising and to manipulate our behavior, i.e. via advertising and discontentment and, and like, you know, placating and kind of preying on innate human vulnerabilities. And so I read this study that said since 2000, the average attention span for a Western European has gone down from 12 seconds to eight seconds. And then it said that a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. I'm like, wait a minute, we're losing to goldfish. It's like, that's what in the world? So I think, I think that's a, that's more than three minutes. Sorry, but that's a brief history. I think of, I think the point of that is we assume this pace of life and this level of distraction is normal and it's not. It's incredibly recent for our species and the early results are not good. Yeah, what's interesting about that too is uh, you talk about 2007, we're kind of in the middle of this experiment. What's interesting is there's already companies, I literally have, uh, well, I won't get into that, but there's companies out there that are trying to already minimalize uh, or minimize the amount of technology, right? So they're like, we're, we're going back to less smartphones and less smart Dude, technology. I just, like that's what we're selling. Yeah, are you referring like the light phone? I just, for my birthday, I should get it any week. If my yes. birthday was in June. Yes. But like I asked for the light phone too, and I'm literally counting the days until it gets here. <laughs> Which is so crazy. I was just talking to somebody about this. Like we, we, we were in the middle of this experiment starting and it's not that long. Like we haven't been in it that long and already we're like, ah, 
I don't know if I like this. Like, I'm, and now business is starting to go. I mean, very. We're at the very, very beginning of it, but starting to go the other way. It's so fascinating and uh, it is, scary. But unfortunately, and and you know, you're you're a thoughtful person. You host a podcast. You read. You think, and without getting myself in trouble here, it's really only elites that are sounding the alarm. Hmm. And you know what I mean? And that's not to sound like, oh, you know, you and me and people that see this as a problem, we're smarter than it. That's not remotely what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, if you go to Silicon Valley, there's all these like, you know, there's been some articles written on this. There's all these like tech, you know, guru people who are putting their kids in like device-free schools, yep. you know, which is like yep. the, the ultimate, like biggie small, don't get high on your own supply kind of thing, <laughs> you know? And so that should like, that should tell us something. So elites, you know, get there first, but if you actually look at the broad population, I mean, that is not the conversation. It's more and more and more distraction. Mm-hmm. So I mean that, I, so th- I just say that the work that you're, you know, doing and the kind of stuff we're talking about stuff's really important. Did you see that article, um, gosh, a year or two ago, how the smartphone ruined a generation by, um, by Gene Twitch? You should just Google it. Um, since this is a a dad, this is about parenting to some level. Um, it's, it's basically a parenting blog. It's from the Atlantic. I, I won't give you the pitch. It's really, really good. It's well worth your time. And she has, you get down to the end of this article. I just pulled it up. And she has these like seven, I think six different graphs about like how much time you spend hanging out with friends, how much people want to drive, dating, sex, loneliness, anxiety, and sleep. And she shows you the graph for our kids' generation, my son's generation, mm. for, like from basically starts in 1976 and then she goes up to a couple of years ago. And basically what happens is 2007 is the phone and 2010 which is the first year that Amer- like half of Americans had a smartphone. Basically from there, everything spikes. I mean, wow. just goes crazy. Anxiety, loneliness, other things plummet, like sex is actually way down, which sounds kind of cool if you're a Christian until you realize it's because of pornography, masturbation, mm-hmm. and the inability to talk to real people to seduce somebody requires interpersonal skills. Mm-hmm. And if you never learn interpersonal skills, you can't seduce people. So, I mean, it's just fascinating, like all this stuff. It's, it's worth your time as a dad. Take you 10 minutes to read. Yeah. It's one of the best things out there on on the implications of all of this for our, our kids. So I'll definitely get that in the show notes for those of you guys listening. It will, it will be in there so you can click into that and read that article. I want to, as we're wrapping up here, I, there, there yeah. may be like one or two guys who are like, ah, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm like, really, I, I see everyone else. They look hurried, but I, I live a pretty chill life. Or uh, maybe the, some guys are, are making the argument that that's probably just you guys out in the West coast or the East coast. Like you guys are kind of busy, but here in the South or Midwest or whatever, like we're, we're a little more relaxed than you. I just want to read something uh, that you put in page 50, like here are 10 symptoms that you put down uh, of hurry sickness, which is hurry sickness you talk a little bit about right before this, but you say this. Number one, you said irritability. Number two is hypersensitivity. Number three is restlessness. Number four is workaholism. Number five is emotional numbness. Number six is out of order priorities. Number seven is lack of care for your body. Number eight is escapist behaviors. Number nine is slippage of spiritual disciplines. 
And number 10 is isolation. So bro, if you're like the guy thinking like, ah, probably not, <laughs> this isn't affecting me. If you're that one guy, uh, if any of those resonated with you, you may have the hurry sickness. And if you want to know more about what that means, uh, you're definitely going to need to get a copy of John Mark's book, The Ru- Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, all right, man, for us, as we're wrapping up, uh, are we like doomed? Are our kids doomed? Is, is there any solution? Is there any hope for us in the midst of all this hurry? Oh man, I would love to just like my, I think my inner like pastoral, like, Oh no, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Just read my book um, but, uh, and buy one for a friend. But I don't, I, I think there is like, and honestly, I think there's some gravitas to this. I think we're at a really serious moment. Um, I think that we can live a different kind of life. And there are practices of resistance from the way of Jesus that are enormously helpful um, in a way of living apart from the inertia and speed of our culture. Um, and there are four of them in the book, as well as like in-depth explorations of each one. And then I put together a free like digital companion. If you go to my website, I have a little thing called How to Unhurry. That's like very, it's for small groups or families or whatever, like step by step, how to Sabbath, how to do science and solid and stuff like that. But I do think like, it's, there is a pretty serious cost. I was struck today. I just got my like actual, got my real printed book in the mail and I yeah. opened it up and I, I reread the foreword, which is by John Ortberg. And my favorite line in his foreword, I'm just going to read it to you to end. He writes this, to choose to live an unhurried life in our day is somewhat like taking a vow of poverty in early mm. sen- earlier centuries. Wow. And I don't know, man, that just really hit me. You know, like there were people forever ago as the, as the Roman Empire was spinning out of control and Western civilization was or Mediterranean civilization was falling apart. who took a vow of poverty and moved into monastic orders in order to live differently and to center on Jesus and not get swept away. And I think that I think we're at a similar moment of, of crisis. And I think that the, the movement is going to be different for us you know, now than it was for Benedict in the fifth century. But the movement is a similar one. I think it's toward um, an unhurried life, monastic rhythms, and not monastic like abandon our families. Uh, if you want to, one of the best reads I've read all year, I'll end with this. It'll take you 30 minutes to read it. It's a little, it's 90 pages, but it has pictures. Um, Domestic Monastery by Ronald Rollheiser hmm. is like every mother and father on the planet should read it. He basically makes a case for how we turn our homes and our families and our parenting into spiritual formation, into a domestic monastery of sorts. I think that that that's the future. Domestic monastery, a vow of unhurry, living counterculturally against the, the chaos. I think something like that is possible as we follow Jesus. John Mark Comer, uh, I'm going to put that uh, that book in the show notes as well. Uh, a couple next steps for those guys who are listening who is like just want more on this topic. One, you have started a new podcast with uh, both of our good friend um, Jeff Bethke, and so yeah. tell, tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, that was it was kind of Jeff's idea. It was great. Jeff and I have books on almost the same thing coming out within two weeks of each other. And uh, his is a little bit more geared at kind of hustle, startup, entrepreneurial culture. Mine's a little bit more geared at spiritual formation, prayer. But they're both really, I mean, like eerily similar. And Jeff and I know each other from way back. So we said, hey, man, let's just do a little podcast together. So they're all short, all kind of this length, 20, 25 minutes. We're doing them this fall. Yeah. And they're wonderful. I've already listened to the first couple episodes. They're wonderful. Uh, go get the book, you guys, The Ruthless Emil- 
Elimination of Hurry. Go check out that podcast. John Mark, thanks so much for hanging out with us today again, man. It's always a pleasure. It's a total honor. Hope you keep up the great work, man, and chat to you when I see you. Thanks.